The Finding Holy podcast is where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between the things that really matter and your everyday holy life. And you'll get to hear everyone's laundry routines. To listen to the Finding Holy podcast, go to aahales.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Troy Angel, and you are listening to Revived Thoughts. Go now and sin no more, that is my office, to forgive sins and to command that men walk no more in sins. How Christ so properly exercises his own office and lets the judicial office stand at its own value. Every episode we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered. Today we're going to be listening to a sermon by Balthazar Hubmeyer. It was preached somewhere in Eastern Europe in the year 1527. It was probably preached right before his death, probably a year before his death. Troy, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Joel. Uh, Joel, this episode is coming out right around the election here in the United States. And this is another one of those accidental timing moments. We've had a few of these on the show where we put something out and in the real world, there's things happening and it could look like this is revived thoughts responding to that issue. And maybe you're listening to this, you know, several months from now or years from now. So that's not the case. Either way, that's not the case. Uh, That was, this is accidental. We didn't really think about what date this is coming out on and what was around it. And this sermon is about whether or not Christians should be in government. And there's this really interesting backstory of how this sermon came to be. And another problem, maybe not problem, but thing you'll find in this episode is Balthazar Hubmeyer is a controversial man. And so we kind of had this controversial message and a controversial man, but rather than shy away from these things, Revive Thoughts wants you to think about them, challenge you, and go through what you think about this whole episode, this guy's story, and this sermon itself. Yeah, I promise we don't plan these things. I think it's more (laughs) just like, I mean, how applicable old sermons are like they just they apply to life so much that we can usually find a way that they they that they cross section with our current you know generation as well absolutely I, one of the most memorable of these is if you are you know if you're listening to this in the year 2020 and not later the that time when the covid shutdowns began was the same exact episode moment where we're putting out an episode on the black plague we could not have you know, planned yeah. that moment by accident. It would just happen to be like, oh, uh, unrelated. Here's an episode by John Wycliffe, and his you know his spiritual journey was deeply infected by affected, sorry, infected, affected by an infection. <laughs> Balthazar Hubmeyer. He's known uh, for being an early leader of the Anabaptist movement. The Anabaptist. I don't. I hesitate to say church. Anabaptist is kind of a controversial term in history but it technically literally just means baptized again like yeah, it's, these it's, people were rebaptized right it's 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 a made-up word that we kind of it was used back then to refer to people that were rebaptized in that time there are historically groups of anabaptists that were theologically very unsound um and then there's others that were very sound and there and you you may be listening to this and being getting ready to charge an email at us we we understand some of the anabaptists were messed up on the trinity some of the anabaptists went off to do some crazy things so the anabaptists sometimes get a bad reputation and it's deserved you know i don't some of our listeners may have heard of hardcore history may know about an episode dan carlin did on the anabaptists that is definitely a part of their movement (laughs) but there was also to a degree where if you weren't a catholic and you weren't a part of the the lutheran 
Calvin Reformation group, then if you believe you got baptized a second time, you were just automatically considered an Anabaptist. And those people had a wide spectrum of belief, and not all of them were as unsound as others. And we think that you can gain something by listening to Balthazar Hubmeyer, listening to, again, both his story and this sermon and what he was trying to say. Balthazar Hubmeyer, he was born in Germany in 1480 or so, or so, they don't know, they think 1480 is probably pretty close. He graduated with what we today consider to be a, like a bachelor's degree in basically one year's time at university. So he's incredibly smart. He studied under a, a professor who would become one of the most intense defenders of the Catholic Church during the Reformation. That same professor would talk about Hubmeyer always being one of his favorite students, one of his classmates who is also uh, relevant in the story and also relevant in history is Johann Faber. And this is, again, someone that Hubmeyer went to school with and was in his class growing up, and they studied under the same professor. His beginnings are very humble. Uh, he takes a job as a school teacher. Then around 30, he's ordained as a priest, and he preaches now and then, but he doesn't really have one spot he's usually in. Uh, in the meantime, he's an excellent student. He masters Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. Um, despite being from a very modest background, his parents didn't have the money to give him those books, but he did. And, and that sounds like, okay, he mastered Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. That's pretty normal, probably. Except you got to remember that Greek and Hebrew had really only started getting studied really intensely again, you know, 20 or 30 years before. The people who were teaching him had only learned how to do it recently themselves. So it was actually pretty impressive how quickly he took those languages on. Nothing about him, though, really seemed like a future leader of a large movement. He was a t professor of a nearby town, and to give you an idea of how far the Reformation is from his mind, how kind of he's a very solidly Catholic priest, is that he then um, gets it in his mind that he has, the, the thing he can do to serve the Lord is to push all the Jews out of the town that he is in, and that becomes kind of his, his mission, almost his crusade for life for a while. Yeah, so as Troy mentioned, he is a Catholic priest during this time, and in the years 1517 and 1518, he led a charge and attack on all of the Jews in his town of Regensburg. They eventually took down the local synagogue there in the town, and one of their own men, one of their own soldiers, was crushed by a, a stone wall that fell on him as they were taking down that synagogue, and they all assumed that he was dead, but a few hours later, he came back, shuffled out of the rubble, I guess. That's how I'm imagining. He's just he's just pushing the rubble aside. And everyone was amazed because everyone thought this guy was for sure dead. So they got permission to build a, a cathedral to the Virgin Mary on that area. And in 1519, the Pope said that if you visited this spot on a pilgrimage, then you would get 100 days taken off your time in purgatory, which because is... Because of that miracle of tearing down a Jewish synagogue right. and then surviving the wall surviving crushing you, the wall crushing. now you get 100 days off purgatory. That's how things time. were done back then. Very different. Like, coming from a, a Protestant background, the idea that I could have 100 days taken off my purgatory time by visiting, yeah, this <laughs> this side of a torn down synagogue. It's, it's, just, it's just a foreign concept, it to, is. especially I, us as Americans. I think everyone can agree. This is, Things are better now. <laughs> This place became very popular because of that fact. You had, you had all these Catholics making pilgrimages to that area, but Hummeyer uh, wasn't really interested, and he came. He became a bit disillusioned by the spectacle, and he decided to move out uh, to a small town in Austria and get a post there as as a priest. 
And many think he was just kind of tired of the ideas of the Catholic Church, and he was uh, curious about new ideas. Um, I think something about that spectacle of seeing a guy pretty much die, come back, you know, didn't die, and then suddenly this is a whole miracle thing, and just seeing how how commercial it all was, much like Martin Luther watching those indulgences and stuff, and him now, he's kind of in that process. He's one of those people. I think something about that just made him go, this doesn't seem right. So he starts reaching out to great thinkers. Uh, Rasmus was really influential. These guys, these early Greek New Testament people who were kind of out there working the early days of the of the um, Reformation movement, he starts talking with them, getting in contact with them. At one point, he starts kind of meeting with a group of Lutherans in secret, and it, there's not really a day, but eventually he he just gets uncomfortable with all the Catholic stuff, and he just starts to, he's reading the letters of the Bible in Greek, and he just sees it as like, no. I, I, I'm rejecting the Catholic Church. I want this other faith. He'll never call himself a Lutheran, but he definitely converts out of Catholicism and, and leaves that behind. At some point, um, he will a guy will be traveling through and will want to will be baptizing people, and Hubmeyer will be one of those guys. I need to be baptized. I, I don't think what happened under the Catholic tradition was right. I need to start. You know, I need a new faith in Christ. Yeah, Hubmeyer started meeting with one of the Reformation leaders, Ulrich Zwingli. And according to Hummeyer, when they first started meeting up, they both uh, agreed that infant baptism it wasn't it wasn't uh, it wasn't lining up with what Scripture was saying, right? But as time went on, Zwingli ended up kind of going back around on that infant ba- baptism, and the the general public still saw Hubmeyer as a follower of Zwingli, and so there's this bit of confusion. There's this bit of falling out because. Hubmeyer is definitely not for infant baptism, and Zwingli now kind of appears to be, and so they assume that they're, they're associating the two together. And this became a problem because he's working as a Catholic priest, and word eventually got to a prince in that county named Ferdinand, and when word got out that he was preaching more of a Reformation movement, that is not going to work for Prince Ferdinand in that land, and so... Uh, Prince Ferdinand gets rid of Hubmeyer for essentially heresy. Around that same time, Hubmeyer writes a book against his earlier professor who ardently defended the Catholic faith. And he also wrote his own beliefs, which got him labeled as an Anabaptist. And so now pretty much everyone in that area, especially the Catholic Church, is that he's, he's firmly established that he is a part of the Reformation movement and he's got that label as an Anabaptist, which again uh, stems from his viewpoint on we need to be baptized as acknowledging adults and not as an infant. Yeah. This basically puts him in a situation where he has everybody as his enemy. And that's kind of the, if you're getting lost in all the names and theology, if you get nothing from this, this guy was very alone. We're both in this era, the Protestant Reformation, where people are running for their lives. If you've listened to our episodes on John Calvin and Martin Luther and John Knox and all these different guys we've looked at, they're always running away from different groups and being persecuted. Hubmeyer is in a situation where he's being persecuted by the Protestants and by the Catholics at the same time, almost exclusively because of his view on baptism. There is a lot of stuff we are skipping through, and we surely would like to look at it in a future episode. Uh, His town pushed all the priests out that were against him, and they decided to stand. That group, that town of Regensburg was like, we're behind Hubmeyer. There becomes the Peasants' War. Uh, There's these different books and articles that Hubmeyer preaches that kind of makes his faith more robust. Uh, He was all about faith, and he preached in the native tongue. It was against purgatory. All these things that he did, and they may sound very simple to us, but these are radical things for his time. He was taking some real 
real you know jumps here but the reason we're kind of skipping through all this a is a long episode but b we need to get to the important part of the story it highlights just how incredible the sermon is in a sense and we had to get to this for you to kind of put these two pieces together but he ended up on the run from both soldiers from Zwingli. Zwingli sends men down to capture Hubmeyer and at the same time this Catholic prince sends soldiers to capture Hubmeyer too and it's Zwingli's people who end up getting him and they pull him back into Zwingli's town um Hubmeyer tried to get away from him all, but he was sick, he's a little frail, he's probably stressed out, and he ends up in jail for four months. He's tortured on a rack for four months. Um, that he they they want him to recant, he goes, I'll write out a recantation. They say, No, uh, recant, you have to you have to publicly tell everyone I no longer believe what you believe about baptism. And he goes, okay, I'll do it. As Wingley gets up, he preaches this big sermon. And afterwards, Hubmeyer is supposed to get up and say, I no longer believe in adult baptism. You know, I, I don't think that's a thing anymore. But he had actually heard this rumor earlier in the day that maybe soldiers from Ferdinand were there anyway to capture him anyway. And he kind of thought about it. And he goes, you know, what? if I'm going down, I might as well go down for what I actually believe. And so he ends up and gets up and gives a speech on why he thinks it's okay for adults to be baptized. He gets thrown back in jail for three more months. He's tortured again on the rack for three more months. Um, not fed very well, but despite the torture and all these things going on, he ends up managing to write another book in that time, which I find interesting that he would even they would even give him paper and pen, but I guess yeah. they do. Well, like so, Paul, right? Yeah. He wrote so a bunch of letters in prison. He's in there writing a book anyway, despite all that. So, I mean, and, and, and it's sad. Most people, we don't like to think of the Reformation guys. You know, we, when we in our head, when we look back in history the catholics selling indulgences they're usually the bad guys the reformation guys are the good guys but you know they were torturing and this was a tough time they were doing some of these things too yeah yeah and this this goes on for a while there's several months where Meyer recants on record several times but zwingli and others you know they, they didn't think it was very authentic they didn't think he was being serious which kind of makes it I don't know, uh, kind of pointless. Like, what's the point of torturing someone into recanting if you don't, like, you get, uh, I don't, it was saying, I don't believe you. Like, I, I like to, I like the idea that he gets up and he kind of like, I don't know if this is how it went, but I like to think that he just kind of gets up and goes, I recant. I don't believe it anymore. But he does, yeah, that's mm. in my mind what mm. he ends up, why these don't seem genuine is he's kind of saying it, but he's clearly not sure. saying it. So, despite him being guarded, I gotta, I gotta imagine he's like, he's like, I gotta imagine it's more like a house arrest type of thing, right? He's not like in a cell. No, um, he was. He was tortured. Like they actually added more guards because they were worried they? he'd get out. How did he escape then? Because that is, we don't know how he escapes. But in fifteen twenty six, he's gone. He escapes, and him and his wife uh, get out of there. They go to Morovia in the Czech Republic, and they settle down a little bit there. And they actually have two relative years of relative piece where they're preaching and the sermon that we're going to listen to um is almost certainly from this time where they're preaching in the czech republic but the problem comes you know this is this is europe right in the late medieval era there's a lot of wars there's a lot of land getting taken over and the land that he is currently residing in morovia gets taken over by our old friend prince ferdinand who was the one that was chasing him just two years earlier and kicking him out for heresy two years earlier so now he also is governing over the town that he's currently in now and if you remember way back in the beginning you heard about johan uh, faber and we said we think you know he's going to come back that student he used to go to school with his old classmate they'd probably you know hang out at the medieval version of the cafeteria together or i don't know they'd cheat off each other's <laughs> homework medieval version of who the knows cafeteria. what they were doing but um prince ferdinand appoints him to the job of persecuting heretics 
Hubmeyer is one of those very first heretics that he gets to persecute, his old classmate. He pulls them before the port, court, give me your statements. Um, Hubmeyer defends his beliefs on adult baptism and, and everything else that he defends with scripture. Hubmeyer refused to use anything else but scripture to defend himself. Johann said, he even said about him, he goes, you're fearless, you you did a great job, and we're sentencing you to burning. Um, Hubmeyer's wife told him on the way to the stake, be strong, don't give up now, you're so close to the end of this thing. And he is he is executed and burned at the stake. And a few days after Hubmeyer is executed, his wife is thrown into a lake and drowned. And that is how these two people um, were dealt with. The irony is that one of the other big things that Balthazar Hubmeyer preached against, you know, we talked about adult baptism. There was one other issue that he got in trouble for, and that was he was very much against burning and killing heretics. He said, look, they can be wrong, but we can't kill all of the people who are wrong. That's not how the government should do things. This is this an adult baptism that gets them odds of the Protestant Reformation. It gets them at odds of the Catholics, and it ends up being what kills him. Yeah, dark ending. What's interesting to me about this story and really about this sermon is if there's ever been a guy, I mean, he's been tortured, he's been chased, he's been pushed down by everybody. If there was a guy who's like, Christians, let's leave government alone, and we certainly shouldn't use the sword to kill our enemies. He, again, he is against killing heretics. You would think Balthazar Hubmeyer might be that guy. This sermon, though, tells you that he wasn't. He was preaching to some fellow Anabaptists who were getting appointed or, or going to be looking like they were going to run a couple government positions. And these guys said, no, I don't, I don't want to be the leaders in this movement. I don't want anything to do with government. The church and government and Christians should never be involved with government. And Balthazar preaches this as basically an answer to that. Like, no, absolutely not. There are Christians who are meant to lead parts of government. And not only are they meant to, but it's not a bad thing to use the sword as the government arm to deal with lawbreakers and bad people. And they, and the verse that they were using was like, well, thou shalt not kill, right? And he's like, no, that's not what that means. Um, there's this part in the middle of the sermon that's really interesting. I really hope you listen to it and think about it. And he, he basically lists all these things that look and sound like contradictions in the Bible. And when you get to it, you're going to be like, wow, that's a lot. I mean, it's, it's a lot of what sounds like contradictions. And then he gets to the end of it, he's like, look, these aren't contradictions. Our Bible is complete, but they do sound like they are. And you have to work through those things in faith and understand these things and trust God that he can take things that to humans may sound a little contradictory and work themselves out and trust them. And very much so, he says, Christians, we may not be supposed to be killing heretics, but we are allowed to use and be in government. And Christians not only can be in government, they should be in government, and they need to do their part to make sure government runs well. And I think that this sermon is just powerful for a lot of different reasons. Not only what he is saying, but who the guy it is who preached it of all people, he would know. Christ says to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, my servants would doubtless fight for me, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. John chapter 18, verse 36. From this scripture, many brothers say, A Christian may not bear the sword, since the kingdom of Christ is not of this world. Answer, if these people would use their eyes, they would say a very different thing, which is that our kingdom should not be of this world. But with sorrow we lament before God that it is of this world, as we testify when we offer the Lord's Prayer. 
Father, your kingdom come. For we are in the kingdom of the world, which is a kingdom of sin, death, and hell. But Father, help us out of this kingdom. We are in it over our head, and will not be freed from it until the end. It clings to us even in death. Lord, forgive us this evil, and help us home into your kingdom. Yet such brothers must see and confess the truth, that our kingdom is of this world, which should cause us heartfelt sorrow. But Christ alone could say with truth, My kingdom is not of this world. Since he was conceived and born without sin, a lamb without blemish, in whom there is no deceit, he alone in truth might also say, The prince of this world has come and has found nothing in me, which we here on earth can never speak with truth. For as often as the prince, the devil, comes, he finds us in wicked lust, wicked desire, wicked longing. Here also St. Paul, now filled with the Holy Ghost, yet calls himself a sinner. Therefore all pious and godly Christians must confess themselves unholy even till death, whatever we may do of ourselves. Jesus says to Peter, Put up your sword in its place, for he who takes the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I could not pray to my Father, and he would send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how would the scripture be fulfilled, that it must be so? Matthew 26, verses 53 and 54. Mark well, pious Christian, the word of Christ, so will you have an answer to the accusation of the brothers. First Christ says, put your sword in its place, for he does not forbid you to bear it. You are not an authority, it is not your appointed place, nor are you yet called or elected to it, for who takes the sword will perish by the sword. The sword means those who act without election, disorderly, and of their own authority. But no one will take the sword himself, except one who has been elected and appointed to. For he does not take it of himself, but it has been brought to him and given him. Now he may say, I have not taken the sword. I would rather be a servant, since I myself not very tough. But since I am chosen, I pray to God that he will give me grace and wisdom, so that I may bear it and rule according to his word and will. So Solomon prayed, and was given great wisdom by God to bear the sword well. Besides, do you hear this? Christ said to Peter, Put up your sword in its sheath. He did not say, Put it away, throw it away from you. For Christ blames him because he seeks it first, and not because he has it at his side. Otherwise, he would have blamed him long before if that were what was wrong. It follows further, Who takes the sword will perish by the sword. That is, he is brought under the judgment of the sword, Though he may not wish it, he will always be judged by the sword for his fault. Do you see here how Christ sanctions the sword, that they will punish with it and suppress self-constituted authority and wickedness, and that they will do who are elected for the purpose, whoever they are? Here it is evident that if men are pious, good and orderly, they will bear the sword for the protection of the innocent, according to the will of God, and for a terror to evildoers, according as God has appointed and ordained. In the third place, Christ said to his disciples when they asked him why he was going to Jerusalem when the Jews had wished before to stone him, Are there not twelve hours in the day? As if he had said, They will not kill me until the twelfth hour comes. For that is the one ordained of God for my death, which Christ also calls the hour of darkness. But when the same twelfth hour came, Christ said to his disciples near the Mount of Olives, Sleep on and take your rest. The hour is here that I should not be given to death in order that the scripture might be fulfilled. 
Peter hears that appointed and foreordained hour of God has come, yet he would oppose and draws the sword of his own authority. That was the great error. Therefore, Christ speaks, There is no use in protecting and guarding me further. The hour foreseen by God is here, and even if there were twelve legions of angels here that might not help me against the will of my heavenly Father, therefore put up your sword. It is useless. I have already said to you, the hour is here, the scripture will and must be fulfilled. From this, every Christian learns that one should not cease to protect and guard all pious and innocent men, so long as he does not certainly know that the hour of their death is here. But when the hour comes, whether you know it or not, you can no longer protect and guard them. Therefore, the leader is bound by his soul's salvation to protect and guard all innocent and peaceful men until a certain voice of God comes in and is heard to say, Now you will no longer protect this man. As Abraham also heard a voice that he should slay his son, contrary to the commandment, you will not kill. Therefore, the judge is also bound to rescue and release all oppressed and persecuted men. Widows, orphans, whether known or strangers, without any respect for persons, according to the will and most earnest commandment of God, until they are called by God to something else, which they will not need to wait for long. Therefore, God has hung the sword at their side and given it to his disciples. Lord, if you will, we will command that fire from heaven fall and consume them, as Elijah did. But Jesus turned to them and rebuked them and said, You know not what spirit you are from. The Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Luke chapter 9, verses 54 and 55. Here my brothers make a great outcry and say, Now you see, Balthazar, that Christ did not wish to punish with fire, and so we should not do it, nor should we use fire, water, sword, or gallows. Answer, look further, dear brothers, where Christ comes to the end, and see what was the authority and command given to him by God. Consider also... What is the power of superiors? Do that, and you will already have an answer. Christ has come, not to judge men, condemn them, or punish them with fire, water, or the sword. He did not become man for that, but his command and authority was to make men whole. That power he had received when he became a man. So he says to himself, Luke chapter 12, 14, Who has made me a judge between you and your brother? As if he had said, You may find another judge. I am not here for that purpose that I should seize another power and command over you. On the contrary, the power and authority of the judge is given by God, that he should protect and guard the pious, and punish the wicked and destroy them. Therefore he has hung the sword at their side, and since it is at their side, they must see it. Now God always punishes the wicked, perhaps with hail, rain, or sickness, and also through certain men who have been appointed and chosen to do so. For Paul calls the judge a minister of God, for what God might do of himself, he often wills to do through his creatures, as they are his instrument. Yes, and even the devil. Nebuchadnezzar and many other wicked men are also called in Scripture servants of God. But it is far better with an orderly government when it follows according to the command of God and it punishes the wicked for the good of the pious and innocent. But the devil and his crew do nothing for the good or peace of men, but everything to their injury and hurt in an envious and vindictive spirit, but the government has a special sympathy with all those who have transgressed. It wishes from the heart that it had not happened. While the devil and his followers wish that all men were unfortunate. Do you see then, brothers, how far separated from one another are these two kinds of servants, the devil and orderly government, and how Christ wished to exercise his power on earth? 
Even so, we exercise our power and calling, whether in government or in obedience, for we must give an account for it to God on that last day. One of the people spoke to the Lord, Master, say to my brother that he should divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or a divider over you? Luke chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Here, these brothers of mine cry out to heaven, but too noisily, and say, Do you hear? Christ will not be a judge or divider. Judgment and court are forbidden by Christ. Therefore, the upright Christian should not be a judge, not sit in the court, nor bear the sword. For Christ did not wish to be a judge or divider between the two brothers. Answer, hold up on your crying, dear brothers. You do not know the scripture. And so you are wrong and do not know what you are saying. Christ says, man, who has appointed me a judge or divider over you? That is not my office, for it belongs to another. Note that Christ does not condemn the office of judge, since it is not to be condemned, as will shortly follow. But he shows this, that no one should undertake to be a judge who has not been appointed and chosen to do so. It comes through the election of courts, mayors, judges, all of whom Christ permits to remain, if with God and a good conscience they rule well over temporal and corporal affairs. But he was not willing himself to assume it, for he did not become man for that purpose, and he was not appointed to it. In that manner also, no one should use the sword until he is regularly elected for that purpose or called in some other way by God, as Moses between the Israelites and Egyptians, Abraham for the deliverance of his brother Lot, and Phinehas against the unclean. If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have won your brother. If he does not hear you, take with you one or two, so that all things may be established from the mouth of two or three witnesses. If he will not hear, tell it to the church. If he will not hear the church, hold him as a heathen and tax collector. Matthew chapter 8, verses 15-17 through 17. From this passage, the brothers raise a grievous outcry against me and say, If a judge were allowable among Christians, then the Christian excommunication would come to nothing and be worthless. For when one punishes the evildoer with the sword, the church may not use the ban. Answer, excommunication and punishment with the sword are two very different commands given by God. The first is promised and given to the church by Christ for the admission of the pious into their fellowship and the exclusion of the unworthy to use according to its will. So whatever sins of men the Christian church forgives on earth, the same are surely forgiven also in heaven. And what sins are not forgiven here on earth, the same are not remitted in heaven. Since Christ delivered, entrusted, and committed to his bride, the Christian church, his command to loose and bind in his bodily absence as he had received it from his Father. Therefore, the Christian church may and will, in the meantime, teach the people all that Christ has commanded her to teach. Also, she has the authority and power to give the sign to all men with water baptism. If they are willing to receive, believe, and order their lives by such doctrine, and to inscribe and receive them in her holy fellowship. For all that she rules and governs on earth, the same is done, performed, delivered, and finished in heaven also. At some distant day this Christ, her bridegroom, will come again in corporal and visible form, in his glory and majesty, and will take again in person his kingdom. And he will deliver it up to his heavenly Father, as Paul writes, until God will be all in all. Even that is the secret mystery in Christ and his church, according to the contents of the letter to the Ephesians chapter 5. The other command relates to the external and temporary authority and government which was originally given by God to Adam after his fall when he said to Eve, 
Under the man's authority you will be, and he will rule over you. Genesis 3, verse 16. If now Adam was set in authority over his Eve, then he received authority over all flesh that should be born by Eve in pain. In like manner, also, God entrusted the sword to certain other God-fearing men. For example, to Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Gideon, and Samuel. After that, the wickedness of men increased and became overflowing, and the bulk of it is rampant. The people at one time demanded from Samuel a king and abandoned God. The same king, at the command of God, Samuel gave them, and they became bound to endure the royal authority and subjection that the king exercised thereafter. For their sins, since they had despised and abandoned God, and had earnestly demanded from Samuel and not from God a king like the other nations. Such subjection and burden we must and will now day by day suffer, endure, and bear, obediently and willingly. We also give and render tribute to whom tribute belongs, tax to whom tax belongs, fear to whom fear belongs, honor to whom honor belongs. And for this our sins are to blame, as the sins of Eve that she must bring forth in pain, and as the sins of Adam that he must eat his bread in the sweat of his face. For if we were pleased to be obedient to God and pious, there would be against us no law, sword, fire, stocks, or gallows. But since we have continually sinned, it must and will be so, and neither rebellion nor anything else can deliver us from it. For God's word is yes and no. But if we heap disobedience upon disobedience and increase sins with sins, in his wrath God will give us kings and children for princes. But he will let the weak rule over us, and if we try to escape Rehoboam, we will run into the hands of Jeroboam. And this befalls us because of our sins. According to the common and true proverb, like people, like king. A stork gobbles up the frogs who are not willing to recognize and receive as king the harmless log. Why is it most necessary, O pious Christians, with great diligence and earnest devotion, to pray to Almighty God for a pious, just, and Christian government on earth, so that under which we may live a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and honesty? When God gives us such, we should receive it with special thankfulness. If he does not give, it is certain that we are not worthy of another and better because of our sins. In this case, the Bible in the Old Testament gives us many histories as examples. See now, dear brothers, that these two offices and commands are not opposed to each other, since they are both from God. For the Christian frequently has place and authority, as for example, in many spiritual offenses, against which the sword may by no means be used, when, according to the occasion of the sin, there should be punishment. That, Christ teaches us very clearly, when he says to the adulterous woman, Woman, has none condemned you? She says, No one, Lord. He answers, Neither will I condemn you. Go and sin no more. As if he would have said, If condemnation has fallen on you, according to the law of God announced for adultery, I should say nothing to the judge, for it is the commandment of God my Father that they will stone the adulterer. But since no one has condemned you, neither will I condemn you, for it is not my office. I have not been appointed a judge, but a Savior. Therefore, go now and sin no more. That is my office, to forgive sins and to command that men walk no more in sins. Hear then, dear brothers, how Christ so properly exercises his own office and lets the judicial office stand at its own value. So must the church also do with the government with its sword, and neither usurp the other's office. You have heard that it has been said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, resist not evil, but if one gives you a blow on your right cheek, turn the other cheek also. Matthew chapter 5 verses 38 and 39 and Luke chapter 6 verse 29.
This scripture is cited by brothers as proudly as if they meant that according to it, judges must unbuckle the sword if they wish to be Christians. But make room. Don't be in too much hurry, dear friends. And here, you who wish to handle the scriptures right. You have heard it has been said in the Old Testament, that is to say, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Therefore, when one comes and accuses another before the judge that he has struck out an eye or a tooth, that such charges were allowed to the ancients, you will find in the fifth book of Moses in the first chapter, the judge must hear the complaint and testimony, and a judge eye for an eye, and tooth for a tooth, according to the law of God. But in the New Testament, it is not to be done in that way. But if no one smites you on the right cheek, do not complain of him, run for no judge, ask no vengeance, as it was permitted to them of old, but turn the other also. For to complain is always forbidden to Christians, as you have heard in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7. If you now suffer and do not injure, you do the business right. For so has Christ specially taught each one to do so. But the judge is not therefore to unbuckle the sword. No, he is much more commanded, if such mischief or injury should happen among themselves or other people, to protect the pious and punish the wicked with the sword. For that he is appointed a servant of God to the good for peace, to the evil for fear, and there he does the will of God. Likewise, although two parties suing about worldly goods sin before the judge, the Christian judge does not sin when he judges the quarrel justly. So even if no one makes a complaint, but the judge knows that one has done another violence and wrong, he should nonetheless perform his commanded office and pronounce just judgment and punish the offender. For so he does not bear the sword in vain. So there is a higher standard in the New Testament than in the Old, that he who is injured and damaged does not complain, and yet the judge punishes. In the Old Testament, the injured complains and the judge punishes. See, dear brothers, how the 13th chapter of Romans must correspond with the aforementioned word of Christ, for if we put the two passages together, one goes well with the other. You have heard that it was said to them of old, You will not kill, but he who kills will be in danger of judgment. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Why is it now, dear brother, that you cry out to heaven and shout aloud? It stands written, You will not kill, you will not kill. Now we have also the command in the Old Testament, plain and clear, that we nevertheless will kill. Do you say, yes, but God commanded them? Then I reply, God has also commanded that the judge will kill and degrade the criminal. He has for this girded them with the sword, and not in vain. As Paul writes to the Romans, Do you now ask, pious Christian, how kill and do not kill agree with each other? Answer, they agree as completely, as be chaste and be married. Matthew chapter 9, verses 3 through 12. As have a wife and do not have one. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 through 30. As a testimony is true and it is not true. John chapter 5, verse 31, verse 32, and chapter 8, verse 14. As have all things and have nothing. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. As to be rich and to be poor. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. As to preach the gospel to every creature, and yet not cast pearls before swine. Matthew chapter 28. As to love the father and mother and to hate them. Exodus 20, Luke chapter 14. As to see God and not see him. Genesis chapter 32 verse 30. 1 John chapter 1 verse 18. As all men will be saved and those who do not believe will be condemned. John chapter 1 verses 7 through 12. As to swear by the name of God and not to swear. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 13, Matthew chapter 5 verse 34. 
as not to sin and yet to have sin. 1 John chapter 1, as to sell all things that we have and give to the poor, and yet to give from our excess that we come not to poverty. Matthew chapter 19, verse 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, as to be poor and happy, to give to him that takes. Matthew chapter 5, verse 42. As Christ to be always with us to the end of the world, and yet not to have him always among us. Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. John chapter 16, verse 7. As God punishes the wickedness of the Father on the Son to the third and fourth generation, and yet the Son does not bear the wickedness of the Father. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 17. As we should not do good works before men, and yet should do good works that men may see them. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. As ask of God all things, and receive them. Also ask, and yet not receive them. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, James chapter 4, verse 2. As beat the swords into the plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks, and beat the plowshares into swords and the pruning hooks into spears. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, Joel chapter 3, as we will not judge and yet judge, and set those inferior to us to judge. Luke chapter 6, verse 37, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 through 4 as Abraham was justified by faith and yet by works. Romans chapter 4, verse 3. James chapter 2, verse 21. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. As to please our neighbor and yet not to please men. Romans chapter 15, verse 2. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. As we will become children and yet we will not be children. Matthew chapter 19, verse 14. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. As God wills all men to be saved, and yet whom he will, he pities, and whom he will, he hardens. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, Romans chapter 9, verse 18. As the yoke of Christ is sweet, and yet impossible to men. Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. Matthew chapter 19, verse 26. As to the judgment of God is good, and yet God has given a judgment that is not good. Romans chapter 7, verse 12. As God will not keep his anger forever, and yet the condemned must go into everlasting fire. Psalms 103 verse 9, Matthew chapter 25 verse 46. As that there is no law given for the righteous, and yet Christ has given us a new commandment. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9, John chapter 13 verse 34. As God does not tempt, and yet God did tempt Abraham. James chapter 1 verse 13 Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. As the Father and Christ are one, and yet the Father is more than Christ. John chapter 10, verse 18. John chapter 30, verse 14. John chapter 6, verse 12. And many similar passages, which appear to be opposed to each other, as the wings of cherubim. And yet all alike come to a head in Christ. Therefore, one should understand Scripture and repeat it well, before he believes, or he will eat death from it and through half-truth and half-judgment will wander widely, widely from the whole truth, and go seriously astray. A comparison. Christ says, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That is now a whole truth. Who now judges from this a half-truth? Says that the bread is the body of Christ and heirs. But he who judges the whole truth says the bread is the body of Christ, which is given for us, but not bodily, 
in itself or substantially, but retain in remembrance according to the command given by Christ at the Last Supper, and that is the whole truth and nothing else is. He who understands that can also see that kill and kill not may be entirely true and consistent with each other. Now then, we take the word of Christ for ourselves and see whether the judge is forbidden to kill. Christ says, you will not kill, and he goes on to the roots of killing and says, But I say to you, he who is angry with his brother is in danger of the judgment, but he who says to his brother, idiot, is in danger of the council, but he who says you fool is in danger of hellfire. Reading that in addition, dear brothers, you will more clearly see what killing Christ has forbidden, namely the killing that goes with wrath, ridicule, and abuse. But the judge, I speak of the true judge, does not kill from wrath, is not moved by words of ridicule and abuse, but acts according to the commandment of God, who has earnestly commanded him to slay the wicked and to keep the pious in peace. Now the magistrate may kill the evildoer, and in doing this he is guiltless according to the ordinance of God, and himself cannot be judged, and I or any other required and summoned am guiltless in helping him. And who withstands with him withstands the ordinance of Christ and himself and will incur the eternal judgment. Do not believe me here, dear brothers, but believe Paul, that you will find yourselves safe. Therefore, those whom we call hangmen were in the Old Testament pious, honorable, and brave men, and were called prefects, that is, executors of the ordinance and law of God, since it is honorable to the judge to condemn with the mouth of the guilty." How can it be wrong to kill the same with the sword and fulfill the word of the judge, since the executor of the law strikes or kills with the sword none whom the judge has commanded him? We read that Solomon had commanded the honorable Benaniah to kill Shimei, Adonijah, and Joab. David ordered his servant to slay the slayer of Saul. 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 15. Since neither the judge nor the executioner kill the evildoer, but the law of God, therefore are the judge, magistrate, and executioner called in the scripture servants of God and not murderers. God judges, condemns, and kills through them, and not they themselves. Where it follows, they who would not kill the evildoer, but let him live, even murder and sin against the command, you will not kill. For he who does not protect the pious kills him, and is guilty of his death, as well as he who does not feed the hungry. The kings of this world, says Christ, lord it, and those in authority are called gracious lords, but you are not to do so. Luke chapter 22, verses 25 and 26. What great creed you make there, and especially of the words, but you not so. But I take pity on you as before, for you have not well seen either the preceding or the following words. For if you do, you would understand them right, and we should come to agreement. Well then, we will begin this passage three lines farther back, and the meeting will then appear plain. So reads the text. There arose a contention among the disciples, which of them should be ruler? Who should have the authority in external and carnal things, since the secular authority is over flesh and body and over temporary things, but not over the soul? To him, according to the divine order, the sword is entrusted, not that he may fight, war, strive, and tyrannize with it, but to defend the wise, protect the widow, maintain the pious, and to tolerate all who are distressed or persecuted by force. This is the duty of the judge, as God himself many times in Scripture declares it, which may not take place without blood and killing. Wherefore, God has hung the sword at his side. 
The last passage, a sanction of leadership among Christians. Let every man be subject to the judge in power, for there is no power apart from God, but the power everywhere is ordained by God, so that he who sets himself against the power strives against the ordinance of God. But he who strives will receive condemnation of himself, for the rulers do not make the good work fear but the evil. Will you not fear? Then do good, so you will have praise from the same. But if you do evil, then fear, for authority does not bear the sword in vain. He is God's servant, a judge for punishment over him that does evil. So you are to submit, not alone because of the punishment, but because of the conscience. Why you must also give for tribute, for they are God's servants who provide such protection. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. This passage alone, dear brothers, is enough to sanction the judge against all the gates of hell. When Paul says plainly, let everyone be submissive to the judge, whether he is a believer or unbeliever, you ought always to be submissive and obedient. He gives us a reason, for there is no power but of God. Wherefore, this obedience is the duty of all who are not against God, since God has not ordained the government against himself. Now the government will punish the wicked, as he is bound to do by his own soul's salvation, and if he is not able to do this alone, when he summons his subjects by bell or gun, by letter or any other way, they are bound by their soul's salvation also to stand by their prince and help him, so that according to the will of God, the wicked may be slain and uprooted. Nevertheless, the subjects should carefully test the spirit of their ruler whether he is not incited by pride, intoxication, envy, hatred, or his own profit, rather than by the love of common good and the peace of society. When that is the case, he does not bear the sword, according to the ordinance of God. But, if you know that ruler is punishing the evil only, so that the pious may remain in peace and uninjured, then you help counsel and stand by him, as often and as stoutly as you are able. So you fulfill the ordinance of God and do his work, and not a work of men. But, if a ruler should be childish or foolish, even entirely unfit to rule, one may with reason then escape from him and choose another. Since on account of a wicked ruler, God has often punished a whole land. But if it may not well be done, reasonably and peaceably, without great shame and rebellion, he should be suffered as one whom God has given us in his anger, and wills, since we are worthier of no better, so to chastise us for our sins. He who will not aid the government to seek out the widows and orphans and other oppressed, and to punish the exploiters and ravishers of the land, contends against the ordinance of God, and will come to the judgment. For he acts contrary to the command and ordinance of God. For God wills that the pious should be protected and the wicked punished. But if you are obedient, you should know that you have rendered such obedience, not to the government or to man, but to God himself. And you have become a peculiar servant of God, just as the government himself is nothing but a servant of God. For that the judge has power and authority to put to death the wicked, Paul plainly testifies when he says, The power does not bear the sword in vain. If the government has no authority to kill, why has he the sword at his side? He then bears it in vain, which Paul will not suffer. He adds also explicitly, The power is a servant of God. Where are they then that say, A Christian may not bear the sword, if a Christian may not be a servant of God? If he may not obey the commands of God without sin, then were God not good? He has made an ordinance which a Christian may not fulfill without sin. That is blasphemy. Accordingly, I counsel you with true love, brothers. Turn back. 
Take heed to yourselves. You have stumbled badly, and under the cloak of spirituality and humility have devised mischief against God and brotherly love. All affairs remain more peaceful where one sees a Christian ruler and his subjects agree in a manly, brotherly, and Christian fashion, and many a tyrant would cease his striving and urging against God and all reason and sheath his sword according to the command of God. Yet, if God wills that we should suffer, his will cannot be hindered by our protection. To sum up, no one can deny that to protect the pious and punish the wicked is the strict command of God, which stands to the judgment day. Examine the scriptures, Christian reader. Read Isaiah 1, Jeremiah 21 and 22, Psalm 61, Micah 6, Nahum 3, Proverbs 3, Zechariah 3, and Habakkuk throughout. This command binds the ruler up to the present day as well as those five centuries ago. For Christ says to you, you will obey the secular king and call the ruler gracious Lord. Not only so, but the greatest among you will be as the least and the best as the servant. If one is conscious that Christ here commands those who would preach his gospel to serve, then they should not undertake any foreign office nor entangle themselves with secular business. For our Pope and bishops have become the first and last in all secular business, even in the business of war. So that when two roosters in Germany or Italy have pecked at one another in an alleyway, the Pope and his cardinals have taken sides with one of them. This Christ cannot suffer, and so he says that the preachers of his gospel must be free of secular affairs, as Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. In the second place, the text clearly points out that each of the disciples desired the preeminence, and they were quarreling which among them should be the greatest. Jesus could not see such a quarrel. It belongs to no Christian, out of lust for authority, to contend to be a ruler but much rather to flee from this temptation. For if there is a frightful post to be found outside of the sphere of the preacher, it is the post of judge and secular ruler. Christ speaks to this effect. The kings of this world lord it and are called gracious lord. But a Christian, if he is in authority, does not lord it. He does not desire to be called gracious lord or sir, but he considers that he is a servant of God and is diligent in performing the ordinance of God, according to which he protects the pious and punishes the wicked. He exalts himself above none, but takes well to heart the words of Christ that the foremost will be as a servant. Do you see, brothers, that here Christ himself points out how the oldest will recognize and hold himself to be the youngest and the foremost to be a servant? There must always be among Christians, old and young, masters and servants, or he has given us this rule to no purpose. So, dear brothers, make no patchwork of the scripture, but putting the foregoing and following words together in one entire judgment, you will then come to a complete understanding of the scriptures. And you will see how the text does not forbid the government to the Christian, but teaches one not to quarrel, war, and fight for it, nor conquer land and people with the sword and force. That is against God. Also, we should not greatly desire to be saluted as lords, like secular kings, princes, and lords. For the government is not lordship and knighthood, but service according to the ordinance of God. The final passage. Christ is our head, and we are his members. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Colossians chapter 1, verse 2. Here I must indulge myself, for they cry out at me, Do you not see that our head, Christ, has not striven or fought? 
Therefore, we must not strive, but go patiently to death. First, dear brothers, I fear you do not know what divine or Christ-like means, for there is a great difference between them. As to that, if we look at ourselves as we are by nature, Christ is not our head, and we are not his members. While he is righteous and truthful, we are wicked and full of lies. Christ is a child of grace. We are children of wrath. Christ never did sin. We are conceived and born in sins. Do you see how as members we agree with the head? Second, that Paul nevertheless calls us members of Christ pertains to faith. That is said so many times. If we know ourselves that we should be members of Christ and yet are not, we confess ourselves guilty and pray God for pardon through Christ Jesus. Through having done this, we firmly believe that God has forgiven us our sins. Now by faith, we have become members of Christ, not in nature, but in will and works. So as far as flesh is concerned, that cannot be obedient to the command of God, but by faith, power is given us to become children of God, and to will and work good. Though still all our works according to the flesh are blameworthy, evil, and worthless, and not at all righteous in the sight of God. Third, since we now know that only by faith are we children of God and members of Christ, we do not have all one duty, so that one should take the lead in teaching, another protects, a third tills the earth, a fourth makes shoes and clothes. Yet these works all proceed from faith and are done for the benefit of our neighbor. Paul also writes further, Why you must be in subjection, not only because of the wrath, but also for conscience' sake. Romans chapter 8 verse 5. What does that mean? It is this. The secular power is ordained of God for the peace of society. Even if there were no scripture about it to make us obedient to the government, our own conscience and knowledge tells us that. We should help, protect, defend the government, and pay service and taxes, so that we may remain in worldly peace with one another. For to have peace in this world is not contrary to a Christian life. Otherwise, Paul would have never taught us through Timothy to pray for kings, princes, and governors, but to keep peace with all men, as much as in us lies. That is right and Christian. But, if God pleases to send us difficulty, we must receive it with patience. Do you see now, dear brothers, that your own conscience compels you to recognize that it is wise and helpful to punish the wicked and to protect the good? That is called, in German, a general land peace. So says Paul, to further and preserve this peace, we must pay taxes, customs, and tribute. Dear brothers, if the government is so unchristian that a Christian may not bear the sword, why do we help and preserve it with our taxes? If we are not under obligation to prevent wrong to our neighbor as well as to ourselves, why do we choose a judge? Or are those in the judgeship not our neighbors? If we desire to live in peace under a heathen government, why not much more under a Christian? Since we are under a Christian government, the ordinance of God should appeal much more to our hearts than under a heathen. To what conclusion does that lead, dear brothers? But Paul takes us farther and says, The power is a servant of God, who will use his protecting power for the good of our neighbor and the preservation of a general land peace. Where it is written, then, that a Christian may not be such a servant of God as fulfills the command of God to the good of all men, or that he may not undertake such a divine work, as Paul himself calls it, according to the ordinance of God. God surely wills that we should share his grace with all, until we come with a great prohibition of his holy word, and that we should remain and persist in the same. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, the peace of God be with you all. Amen. Amen.
I mentioned it as we were leading up to it, but I go back to it again, that list of scriptures and how they seem like they should contradict, right? Like these things that we all read the Bible and we all feel those moments of tension where it's like, wait, but didn't you say over here this and now this, what do I do? And I love his answer, which is just trust God. And this this thing that seems so complex and seems so contradictory is not nearly as much so as we think it is. If we really trust him and we really study, and instead of running from the word and saying, oh, it's contradictory, it must be human made, it must be man-made, I'm going to throw it out, which is what I think happens to a lot of us today. You go into it and study it even more and really trust God to work it out for you. And then it you will learn what it is God is trying to communicate through these different verses and their real meanings. I love that Habmeyer just lays it all out there and talks about it and just says, this is what it may look like, but this is what it actually is. And again, I love this guy's story of a guy, if anybody, again, should have said, like, Christians, we get away from government. There's just nothing for it. I've been on both sides of that. He's like, no, no, if anybody, we Christians need to be the people who are most in government so that we can work these things for good and make government better because who else are we going to lead it to, right? Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by John Rayner. John Rayner uh, has been a commercial radio announcer with America Samoa since 2006, where he and his wife, Alice, live with four children and attend Grace Peace Fellowship Bible Church. We want to encourage you to check us out on social media and uh, go out there and catch up with us there, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, we have some stuff going on, and especially if you're on Facebook or Twitter, that's where we really stay more active. Uh, connect with us there and be on the lookout, especially this week is a good time if you're not already following us to get on that place because uh, we have a, we, I'm just going to say it, we have a new show coming out. It's been in the works for a long time. We've been kind of teasing it for a long time. But it will be coming out in the next week or so, so be on the lookout for it. You will receive more details as the show is officially launched. But we're really excited about it. And if you're on social media, you will be able to see that kind of in real time. If not, you'll be getting it a little bit more delayed, I think. And if you like Revive Thoughts, I really think that this show is going to be is going to be perfect. Everyone we've talked to, we've sent it to preview listeners and people, and they're all like, this is exactly that piece I was mm. missing so far. It really complements Revive Devos and Revive Thoughts well. Yeah, what a tease, Troy. <laughs> Letting you get excited about yeah. it. So this is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. I hope you enjoyed that podcast, and if you did, I'd like to also invite you over to the Finding Holy podcast, where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between things that really matter in issues of faith and your everyday holy life. You'll even get to hear about the laundry routines. Go to aahales.com slash podcast or listen to the Finding Holy podcast wherever you choose to listen to your shows.